We talk a lot on the show about objects that are handmade. There's something purposeful and essential when it comes to handmade tools. This episode's object is a handmade tool in the shape of a fish. It's a fish decoy. We'll learn about the darker truths behind the fish decoy world. Art is basically not a regulated business and people get away with murder. And later, hear the life story about the man who collected hundreds of them. Looking into the fishing hole is like a window into another world. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warakas. Episode 10, Decoy, Dark House, Dinner. This was the first object this season that was purchased online. A nine-inch long carved fish decoy arrived at my house. I didn't pay much attention to how strange it looked until I saw it in person. It's a carved piece of wood in the shape of a fish. Its side and tail fins are very strong cut metal, painted a crimson red. The fish itself is solid wood that is painted white with a band of red in the middle. The fish comes to life at the head. Two eyes made of beads and a cutout mouth, both colored red. This handmade fish decoy has three eyelets on its back. I suspected that it was for a fishing line. I originally imagined this large wooden fish thrown into a river on a hot day. Any fisherman would make a cast into water such as this. It just looks fishy. If all fishing trips could only be like this. Action every minute. Nope. Wrong type of fishing. This decoy is for ice spear fishing. Mostly used in the cold northwest of the United States and Canada. It was clearly for spearing. It wasn't, you know, fishing with the lure on your line. The voice you hear is Stephen Michon. He has been an ice spear fishing decoy collector since the 1980s. He has published books and created exhibits educating people on the true history behind fish decoys. It is very similar to a duck decoy, but it's more immersive. The whole process using this decoy was more involved than I thought. They would have to saw the auger to cut the hole. And they would put the ice shanty yeah. in it. They usually would have a heater in there or a fire. And they're in there for a couple of days fishing and they're getting drunk out of their minds. Remember, this is in below freezing temperatures in the middle of a frozen lake. The spear, which is like a trident pitchfork combination, is wielded in the fisherman's hand as he ties the decoys on a jig stick in complete darkness. The jig stick is where the decoys are tied onto. Sometimes you can use multiple at the same time. On the bottom of my decoy was something I did not see online. There was a taped label apparently from another store. In pen it read, 
prior owner, Kimball, red and white fish, circa 1930s and 40s, $575. It was from an estate sale the online store owner bought it from. Let me first say that I did not pay close to that much, but I was shocked that something this small could reach triple digits in price. The online seller on Etsy said it was from a collector in Michigan. Was he Kimball or the original carver? I decided to seize my chances and went to Northern Michigan to find some answers. I was in a town called Leland, an important fish harbor town way up in Northwest Michigan, standing on a dock surrounded by buildings over water. This area is called Fishtown. This is where old boat home buildings sit above the Lake Michigan water. I walked from building to building on wood slatted docks. Though I didn't see any usable decoys there, I saw something better. An eight foot long fish decoy was spinning over the roof of a shop in Fishtown. I drove around to other towns in Leelanau County. I went to antique places, shops, and restaurants and asked around. I saw a lot more decoys in the surrounding woodland towns. Some looked like the one that I had. One antique seller had an ice fishing spear around 10 feet long. He said it was used to catch sturgeon. This showed me how ingrained ice spear fishing is to the Great Lakes area. Well, that's because it's the only place you can actually do it. Basically, the, the decoys were from New York, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. That was it. They outlawed them in New York around 1910 or 12 or something like that. To this day, it is still illegal to ice spear fish in most states, especially without certain permits and equipment. Collectors, like Stephen, focus on specific states where these decoys were made. I focused on Michigan. I did not collect Minnesota and Wisconsin because you just can't collect everything. He told me that mine is most likely not from Michigan. But he said it seemed to be from the 1930s or 40s. That's when the best decoy makers started their craft. The heyday of it was the 1920s and the 30s. But I want to mention that spearfishing has been around since caveman times. Ice spearfishing decoys were first used by Eskimo over 1,000 years ago. One of the oldest surviving ones is a small fish carved out of walrus ivory from around 1000 AD. But by the 1800s, Caucasian Americans and settlers were borrowing this technique from Native Americans to catch food. They used anything on hand to make a decoy. A lot of them were made out of pine. There are lots of them made out of walnut. I mean, it's whatever they could use, but it had to be realistic. And the whole purpose was, you know, to fool a fish. I then pivoted to the label that was taped to the underside belly of the fish. That name Kimball, in quotes, was nagging at me. But actually, Stephen knew who that was. Yeah, he was a dealer, and his children were part of his team, and I think they probably are still selling decoys. I don't remember that he carved any. I did a quick search on Google for Kimball Fish Decoy, and some books came up. They were titled The Fish Decoy, and it was written by Art, Brad, and Scott Kimball. So Art Kimball was the father of Brad and Scott. They lived in northern Wisconsin. These books are now quite expensive, because the first edition came out in the mid-1980s, and it was the first ever all-encompassing book of American Fish Decoys. They made revisions and released more editions by the 90s. Stephen actually has their books. I have all his yeah. books. I looked through all of them for that decoy. I didn't see it, which is a surprise. Okay. He, there's so much in those books. So I guess my next step was to find the Kimballs and hear their story. 
After hours of research, I had found an obituary for the son, Scott Kimball, and a reference that Art, the father, passed on as well. So I did a search for Brad Kimball on an online directory. He lives in a small town in northern Wisconsin, almost on the Upper Peninsula border. So I sent him a letter and an email. He got back to me. We've actually been emailing back and forth for months now. He was a very cordial and open person about his family. He told me he didn't want to be recorded on the podcast, but he said I could hire a voice actor to read his emails. Here's an email from Brad Kimball, the son of the man who collected this decoy. One thing to keep in mind is that I never made a living selling decoys and writing books. That that was my father's deal. I'm a land surveyor and worked with the Wisconsin Department of Transportation most of my career. Though Brad Kimball was listed as a co-author of the books, he wasn't involved as much as his brother and dad. Scott Kimball, his older brother, was born in the mid-50s and was not only involved with the books, but also carving his own decoys. My brother Scott, he was an artist and did some illustrations for the books. He did quite a bit of wood carving, especially when he helped run a gift shop in Wisconsin. They would buy decoys, sometimes cataloged in their books, and sell them in a gift shop that Art and his wife started in 1993. They, they sold a lot of fish decoys out of the shop, and they also sold quite a few fish decoys for my father. The reason Brad and Scott were around this decoy madness was because of their father Art, who was a collector. My father sold fish decoys almost exclusively, unlike some others who sold fish decoys in addition to duck decoys and other antiques, folk art, collectibles, etc. Arthur W. Kimball III was born in 1933 in Indianapolis, Indiana. He grew up as an only child with his Midwest parents. He loved to fish, hunt, and collect almost anything as a young kid. In 1955, Art married Annie Little and frequently vacationed in the Wisconsin woods where Brad resides now. After working at a paper company in the late 1970s, Art went into fish decoy collecting. Brad sent me an article a friend wrote about Art with the headline, Art Kimball, Pioneer, the Fish Decoy Organization and Identification. In this article were pictures of Art. In one photo, he wears an endearing grin, holding a Native American decoy. This is another email from Brad, Art's son. I I did, however, help with the decoy books, uh, especially the early history portions of the Fish Decoy Volume 1 and the Lac du Flambeau Ojibwe Fish Decoy book. The Lac du Flambeau are a Chippewa, or Ojibwa indigenous tribe, in Wisconsin. And the Kimballs had made friends with many members. They wrote books about the Native American fish decoys, many of them art collected after the carvers had passed away. The decoy that I have is unique and none of the collectors I wrote to seemed to recognize it. Your decoy looks handmade for sure. It it actually looks like it has a lot of folk art appeal. The connected side fins with the front and back fins being one piece of sheet metal is very unusual. I don't recall ever seeing one made just like yours. I can't say for sure, but if I had to guess, I would say that your decoy is probably a non-indigenous decoy from Minnesota. That being said, I I have seen quite a few red and white decoys made by tribal members, however, particularly from Minnesota. I wrote to other decoy experts and collectors who actually knew the Kimballs. One from Minnesota said that he knew art very well, but that mine had no regional influence of the flambeau style. Another carver from Michigan said that it could be Native American, but he's never seen anything like it. I asked Brad Kimball who else I should talk to. A person you may want to contact is Chuck Ondrick, who 
wrote many fish decoy articles for the Hunting and Fishing Collectibles magazine. I would probably consider him to be the overall top expert in the fish decoy history field. He said that Mr. Andrik would make a list with all the decoys they sold. Maybe my decoy was on that list. Brad also sent me a spreadsheet he made of every single fish decoy carver, fisherman, and collector out there. Over 1,700 were on the list. I scrolled down the list to Chuck Andrik and got his contact information. Then I sent a letter to Chuck. He actually was in Michigan when I was there. I recorded myself getting his returning letter. Here is the letter from Chuck Andrik. Dear Mr. Hess, I do not know the name of the maker of the fish decoy you own. I do know it was crafted by an independent fish decoy carver, a carver who made it in his own distinct style and did not belong to a regional school of fish decoy carvers. This was a little cryptic, but intriguing nonetheless. I have not heard back from Mr. Andrik since. It seemed that there were more questions than answers from this note. Mr. Andrik, however, was the man who wrote that article about art, the one that Brad sent me. And I can tell that art had a very strong connection with the people and family around him, from his collection to fishing. Even though my father was quite a fisherman, he only went spearing a couple of times. He, he never really did that much ice fishing in general, really. When he did go spearing, he, he never used his valuable decoys from his collection, just something that had good action. So. You really don't want to use valuable decoys. Stephen Michon told me something similar as well. When I look at some of these beautiful, the best of the best, I would never throw them in the water. <laughs> Just wouldn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Stephen is talking about the rarest and most coveted ones, made by the master carvers. Every fish decoy collector knows the names Peterson, Janner, and Seymour. These were fish decoy carvers who made their most immaculate and beautiful decoys from the 1920s to the 1940s. They all look very different from mine, though. One of Oscar Peterson's large decoys sold for over $42,000. He created over 15,000 decoys in his life, noted as the best ones to collect. But now, the market is flooded with copies of the originals. So what, what happened early on in the 80s, a company in Minnesota called Miko started faking these things, and they totally flooded the market with them. The, the field got totally corrupted. They made these ones look old, like the folk art carvers of the 30s and 40s, just for a profit. And like I said, there were so many fakes. Most of the dealers have no morality whatsoever. Art is basically yeah. not a regulated business, and people get away with murder. This was something that Brad, Scott, and Art Kimball were learning about when writing their books. Art's collection is a mixture of this. Some are authentically old, some are cheaper to resell, and others are for fishing. Chuck Andrick remembers a saying that Art would tell him. Art would often entice a potential buyer of a fish decoy crafted by an unidentified maker by exclaiming, this fish decoy is a real attractor of fish that has been there and put food on the table. He would often add, I really don't care if I sell it. The fish decoy you own falls in that category. I then realized that it isn't about finding the original carver of this decoy, but learning about the man who had saved it for over 20 years. His knowledge, love, and care for the people who made and collected decoys is unparalleled. Brad mentioned that I should watch a short PBS documentary because his father was interviewed in it. 
way back into the 1700s and early 1800s, they all reported from this area that they were gathering fish in this way, using a wood fish decoy through the ice. This is Art Kimball interviewed in 1998. It is the first time on the show I've been able to see and hear the person who directly owned an object. He is sitting upright in his antique store, wearing thick aviator glasses and a green button-up shirt. This short TV doc series episode is specifically about indigenous decoy history and making. They interview one Lac du Flambeau fish decoy carver named Ben Chosa. The visuals of him teaching how to catch a fish his way is astonishing. Here's Brad again. The term dark house generally refers to a ice fishing shack with no windows. The small tents, often called spearing teepees, used by Native Americans are are not usually referred to as dark houses, but they serve the same main function. In order to see down into the hole, you need to block the light from the sky. Without this, it just looks black or you see surface reflections. In the documentary, they show an old clip of Mickey Schumann, a Lac du Flambeau Ojibwa person, ice fishing in the 1970s, while Art Kimball narrates us through the steps. You're in the dark when you're in the teepee, but the whole water lights up like an aquarium. It's marvelous. These dark houses are tiny structures made for one or two people. You cut a rectangular or circular hole in the middle of the dark house and tie the fishing lines onto each decoy. Most Native Americans use different methods. Ben Chosa in the video just uses three blankets over some sticks, like a makeshift teepee. Then he submerges himself, belly down, into the fort with a spear and fish decoys. With the dark house or teepee, looking into the fishing hole is like a window into another world, to use the words of Ojibwe spearer and decoy maker Ben Chosa. But if you cover that hole and look down in it, it's just like a window into a In the dark, with the water lit up by the surrounding light, you never know what you're going to get. Similar to a fish getting speared or hooked, that's how collectors like Art Kimball and Stephen Michon started. I've done this all my life. I started collecting when I was five years old. To me, it's the chase. I'd like to find things. I mean, my favorite thing in the world is fly fishing for Atlantic salmon. And it's the hookup. Once you have the hookup, you don't care anymore. That's, That's what collecting is. As a collector of many things myself, this analogy stuck with me. Art Kimball's fish decoy collection was not planned. His very first decoy came into his life randomly. This was kind of what started this whole thing off. It was the first like the flambeau fish decoy that we found um, years ago. In the video, they zoom in on the small wooden decoy. And it just was so fine that it got us going on this whole thing. In this docuseries episode, I realized that all of Kimball's decoys had metal fins. Stephen Michon mentioned to me that the fins are metal because they're bendable, so that when placed in the water, they swim in a circular motion. This is what entices the fish. Something was also mentioned to me. Metal lead is melted down to a liquid state and poured into the belly of the fish. This is the counterweight. My decoy has this too, under the taped store label. During the fishing process, sometimes two or three decoys are used at the same time on the jig stick. They dance around based on how the fisherman moves them. It's like an underwater puppet show. When the fish gets close to the decoy, the fisherman throws a spear in the water that is tied by a rope. Then they pull it up with the speared fish, remove the decoys, and there's dinner. But it's a lot harder than it sounds. 
sometimes you lay down or sit for hours. So it's a game of patience and resilience. <laughs> this skill of carving, collecting, and fishing with fish decoys is truly a topic that needs mentioning. The younger generations today are not using these techniques anymore, and the traditions are slipping away. Carving decoys is definitely a unique skill, especially making fish decoys that swim. A swimming decoy should move forward when you pull the line straight up. Getting the fins and weight just right takes some knowledge and skill. I think that Art could see the skillful craft in every decoy he collected. Here is Art Kimball from the documentary. Some of these are just remarkable, and they're functional. Sometimes it's the only artistic thing a man might do in his life. And I can imagine whoever made this decoy in the 1930s was for survival, so that in the brisk winters, his family was fed. Uh, live bait was generally very difficult to get in the winter, so the, 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 the wood decoy ha had to work, and it was a matter of necessity. It, it was a, a good way to get fish. It, it's not an easy way to get fish, uh, but it does work. But I'm glad that Art Kimball held on to these decoys, preserving these pieces of art that were once tools to stay alive. Most likely, my decoy was used to catch pike, possibly upwards of 35 inches long. It fed one family 80 years ago and thrilled another family 40 years later. Now it rests on the shelf of my Tucson home, giving me the same amount of joy that it did for decoy pioneer Art Kimball. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscure Journey, where every object has a story. Thank you to Stephen Michon for sharing valuable insight into fish decoy history. You can go to his website, fishdecoy.com. You can order his book, American Fish Decoys, on his website or on Amazon. On his website, there are some pages with some articles and a shop to buy some merch. Thank you to Brad Kimball for responding to all my emails and being very welcoming to share your family's story. You can order their books, The Fish Decoy, on Amazon as well. Voice of Brad Kimball by Robert Anthony Peters. Thank you to Don Mickelson, Lance Avisto, and Jennifer from the WDSE WRPT Duluth TV station, ASU Libraries, and Brandon Falk for the rights and access to use the short PBS documentary. Special thanks to those I sent emails to. Chuck Ondrick, Tim Spreck, Dave Kober, Rodney Oswald, and Sherry from YPSA. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast. Written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. Check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a rating. I love feedback. It's what helps the show get better. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us out to investigate more amazing stories in the future. We hope that we can travel to meet each person face-to-face -face in future episodes. Want to reach out to us? Well, send us a message on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at Object.Obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. Or you can send me an email at Thatcher at Object-Obscura.com. It can be about an object you want to discuss on the show, anything interesting you heard in this episode, or about anything obscure. I will post all the pictures of this episode's object and the people you heard voices from on each platform. 
We're actually going to take a mid-season break here. So the next half of season two will start on October 15th. That's two weeks from this episode's release. Trust me, it's well worth the wait. Here is where the next pair of objects takes us. In the quarter mile, turn left. All right, car. I don't, I don't know that I've been here before. Really? It doesn't look familiar to me at all. So left and then another left. I believe so. Turn left, then you will arrive at your destination. Wow, this is like so Jurassic Parkish. Okay. Let's do this. See you in two weeks.